Let us pray. Almighty and glorious and gracious God, we thank You for all Your wonderful deeds. Because of all You have done for us, we will be glad and rejoice in You. You have set Your Son, Jesus Christ, upon Your throne. And He rules over all. His throne is immovable and unshakable. We thank You for His great epiphany to the nations as He has been manifested as the Lord and Savior of all. We thank You that His light shines upon the whole world for all who have eyes to see. Oh God, give us eyes to see His light and His radiance and His glory and His splendor and His majesty this day. You, O oh God, are a God of justice and faithfulness, a God of love and righteousness. Your wisdom is displayed in all the wonders of creation, but especially we see who You are in Your wondrous work of redemption, saving us from sin and death through Your Son on the cross. Father, may our eyes be fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. May we be made more like Him because we have gathered in Your presence here this day. Father, be with us. Give us Your gifts. Renew Your covenant with us. Strengthen us in the faith. Advance Your kingdom in the world. We pray that You might do these things for our good and for Your glory. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is from the last chapters of Revelation. I'll be reading just the first few verses of chapter 22. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for this vision of your city. We pray that you would fire us, fire our imaginations, fire our hearts, so that we would be busy realizing this city here on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation consists of four main visions, each of which is initiated by the Spirit of God. Four times John said, I was in spirit, and he hears a voice, or he's taken somewhere, and he sees a vision of things that are shortly to take place. In the Spirit on the Lord's day, he hears a voice behind him, and he turns to see the glorified Jesus, the Son of Man who dictates to him seven messages that are going to go to the seven churches of Asia. John is in the spirit again, and again he hears a voice, but this time the voice summons him up into heaven. And he's caught up into heaven to see the lamb ascend, to see the lamb open the scroll, open the seals. 
to hear the trumpets that announce the declaration of the contents of that book, to see the blood of the martyrs poured out. John is in heaven watching as the saints are harvested. Their blood is squeezed out and their blood is poured out on the world and dismantles the old creation. Then, in the spirit, John is swept out to the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he sees Babylon, a harlot city, not a faithful bride of the Lord, but an adulterous bride, an unfaithful city, a city that was in covenant, in marriage covenant with the Lord, but fell away. And this third vision in the wilderness covers a lot of territory. It goes from the fall of the harlot, the unveiling of the harlot and her collapse, runs through the entirety of human history to the last judgment, and to the final revelation, the unveiling of the true bride, the new Jerusalem that descends from heaven. In Revelation, over the course of chapter 17 through the middle of chapter 21, you have the entirety of human history from John's time, or near John's time, all the way to the end. That's a lot of time to cover. It's a lot of history to review. And I'm not going to try to go over it in great detail, but there are several important things that are happening during that third vision that John sees happening uh, as he, after he sees the harlot city unveiled. Three enemies of the saints have appeared during the course of Revelation. There's first of all the dragon who tries to gobble up the child that's born. He tries to uh, destroy the Messiah as soon as the Messiah appears. That fails. It fails several times over. So the dragon, who is Satan, calls up beasts from the sea and a beast from the land, and he continues his war against the saints through these beasts. Those are the second set of enemies. And then the harlot is revealed. The harlot is the city that drinks down the blood of the saints, that drinks the blood of the martyrs, that drinks so much blood that she gets drunk and finally falls. Those three enemies are unveiled. Jesus is unveiling himself in the course of the apocalypse. The word apocalypse means Unveiling. He's unveiling himself in his glory, but he's also unveiling things that are hidden within the history of the church. He's unveiling the enemies of the church, the dragon, the beasts, and the harlot. And in the third vision, each of these enemies is eliminated one by one in the reverse order of how they were revealed. They were revealed in the order of dragon, beasts, and harlot. They're eliminated in the order of harlot, beasts, and dragon. Babylon the harlot is the first enemy to be destroyed. John has no no sooner seen her riding on the back of a seven-horned beast than the horns of the beast turn on her, destroy her, strip her naked, burn her, and eat her. And Babylon is fallen. Babylon is out of the picture. People mourn on earth over Babylon. Uh, Babylon is a harlot and her her customers mourn that she's no longer able to continue her services to them. But in heaven, there's rejoicing because the fall of Babylon is the final vengeance for the blood of the martyrs. The martyrs at the beginning of Revelation were crying out for the Lord to avenge their blood. They've shed their blood on the earth, but the Lord has done nothing. The Lord has not judged their enemies. He hasn't elevated them. He hasn't vindicated them. But when Babylon falls, then we have the vindication of the martyrs. This is an unveiling of Jesus, the unveiling of Jesus as the victor over the harlot, 
but it's the unveiling of Jesus as victor through the victory of his people. Jesus doesn't win this battle directly. Jesus wins this battle through the martyrs who testify faithfully and truthfully to Jesus even in the face of death, shed their blood because of their testimony, and their blood is what brings down the old city. Jesus tramples the harlot city under his feet through the feet of his people. But there are more enemies to go. They're the beasts. If you were a Hollywood producer producing the book of Revelation, you would want a final standoff, a final battle scene that would take the last half hour of the movie between the lamb and the beasts. The beasts are introduced as false lambs. The lamb is a king. The lamb is the true prophet. The beasts are a false prophet, uh, and a false king, and a false prophet. The sea beast representing the empire of Rome that's now turned against the saints is a royal beast wearing crowns, ruling, uh, oppressing the saints. The land beast, which represents those who in Israel who have turned against the Lord Jesus, is a false prophet. Together they make a false Christ, a false lamb. And if you were a Hollywood producer, you'd want to stand off at some point. You'd want to get these two uh, characters or three characters on the screen at the same time. You can imagine the scene. The lamb throws one of the beasts against the Empire State Building and it crumbles to the ground. There's got to be a standoff, mano a mano, man against beast, beast against beast, lamb against beasts. But it doesn't happen. It never happens in Revelation. This is one of the strange things about Revelation. We're promised a battle back in chapter 16. All the armies are assembled for battle, the battle of Armageddon. Try to find the battle of Armageddon actually described in the book. It's not. Jesus finally appears after the harlot city has fallen, and he looks like he's prepared for battle. He's riding on a white horse. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. He's surrounded by armies who are wearing white robes. It looks like he's ready for battle, but there really isn't any opposition. He goes forth doing justice and waging war, but there's really no battle. There's no fight. When Jesus appears from heaven, he's really more on a triumphal procession than he is going out to battle. The battle has already been won. Jesus has already trampled the beasts under his feet, the beasts under the feet of his body, which is the church. Because the martyrs have suffered and died, because the martyrs have shed their blood, not only the harlot, but the beasts are overcome. And all Jesus does when he comes is, like a great emperor, execute the enemies, execute the opposition, and pass out favors to those who were loyal to him throughout the war. That is, to the martyrs. And so Jesus appears, executes the false prophets and the beast, the sea beast, throws him into the lake of fire, and then distributes favors to his martyrs by elevating them on thrones. This is the thing that everybody knows about Revelation, the millennium. That comes after the beasts are destroyed. Jesus puts his martyrs on throne and they re- thrones and they reign for a thousand years. That's the period of history that we're currently in. We are in the world. We are now in the world made by the martyrs. We are now in the world that is ruled by the martyrs. We are now in the world where Jesus and his saints rule. The beasts, the Roman Empire, and the false Jews have been overthrown, and the saints have been elevated. This is the final vindication of the martyrs. 
Not only are they rescued, not only does their enemy do their enemies fall, but they are given thrones. They start out at the base of the altar, but eventually they are, end up in heaven, or actually on earth. Heaven and earth, you can't tell. They're on thrones, reigning with Jesus. Jesus, again, tramples down his enemies through his people. But throughout the millennial period, according to Revelation 20, the dragon is still around, or at least he's still alive. He's not thrown into the lake of fire. He's chained up. He's confined. He's limited. He can't deceive the nations. He can't do what he did here in Revelation, which is gather all the nations against the saints. He's not going to be able to do that throughout this period because Jesus and the martyrs and the saints are reigning. But the dragon is still there. And at the end of Revelation 20, the dragon is released for a short time. He organizes and deceives the nations to attack the church one last time. The end of history will rhyme with the beginning of history. History begins with a satanic deception of humanity. History will end with a satanic deception of humanity. But again, there's not much of a battle. The dragon is overthrown when fire comes down from heaven, rescues the saints, and then we're into a final judgment. All the dead are gathered before the throne, and they're, uh, they're blessed or cursed in the lake of fire according to their deeds. And then the heavenly city comes down from heaven. By the time we get to the end of a third, the third vision, everything has happened. The enemies have been overthrown. The harlot has been overthrown. The beasts, the dragon, finally overthrown. The last judgment has taken place at the end of chapter 20. The heavenly city has descended. It's a new creation. It's a new heavens and a new earth. The saints dwell in the new heavens of the earth and the new earth and all those who are enemies of Jesus have been thrown into the lake of fire. It's a good place to end the story. It's a good place to end the book. But there are four visions in Revelation. We are not yet at the end. Even though human history has ended, according to the story, we're not yet at the end of Revelation. Something more happens. And in the middle of Revelation 21, John is swept up again by the Spirit for a fourth time. This time to a mountain. He moves from Patmos to heaven, from the wilderness to a mountain. And from a mountain he sees a vision of new Jerusalem descending from heaven. Read through Revelation 21 at your leisure and ask yourself, why does a city descend twice? What's going on here? It descends at the beginning of the chapter after the last judgment. Then a new vision begins and he sees again a city descending from heaven. What's going on? Are there two cities of God? Are there two heavenly cities? No. What we're seeing in Revelation are is the city of God, the one city of God, that is pictured in two different phases. The, uh, the vision that's shown of the new city coming after the final judgment is the final order of all things. Rewards and punishments have been distributed. The saints are in a new heavens and the new earth. That's the end of all things. But when you get the fourth vision, the second vision of the city, we're actually moving back in time and we're getting a glimpse of the city that's not simply a city that we're looking to, toward, ahead to, but a city that is now present. You heard in the epistle reading today that we have come, have come, not will come, but have come to Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem. We look ahead to a city. We look forward to the new creation. We look forward to the final completion of all things in a new heavens and a new earth. But we are right now 
in the heavenly city. We are the heavenly city that has descended, is descending, and will descend from heaven. John's last vision is not of something that's far off in the distant future. It's something that's present. It's not the future city. It's the city now. What what does a city look like? It looks like a most holy place. All the dimensions are the same. It's as wide as it is deep as it is high. That's like a description of the most holy place in the ancient the ancient Israelite sanctuaries, the most holy place, the inner sanctuary of God, where no one was allowed to go except the priest, that was a cube. The width and the depth and the height were all the same. But now, the city has become a most holy place. It's a sanctuary city where the people of God dwell and carry out not only the liturgy of the day, of Sunday, the Lord's Day, but carry out ongoing liturgy of life together. The whole city has become a sanctuary. There aren't any barriers. If you're in the city, you're in the inner sanctuary. You're not on the outside. You don't have to stay out in the courts. You don't have a, a, a screen that keeps you from coming into the presence of God. If you're in the city, you're in the most holy place, and the whole city has become sanctuary. It's in, in, in its entirety has become a place of worship. John tells us that there is no temple in this city. And we're inclined to think, we anticipate that he's going to say there's no temple in it. This is chapter 21, verse 22. There's no temple in it because the whole city is a temple. You don't need a temple at the center of a city if the whole city is a temple. But that's not what he says. There is no temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Think about that for a minute. What's a temple for? A temple is a dwelling place for the God. A temple is a dwelling place for the image that represents the God. In this city, God is the temple. So who are the gods that dwell in the temple that is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb? We are. We are the images set up in the temple that is God himself as the gods of this world created images of God in the temple that is God. That's the city we presently inhabit. A city in which there is no temple because the Lord, God Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. It's a city of light. I read in chapter 22 that it's a city that needs no sun. It's a city that doesn't need to be illumined by a lamp because the light of the Lord is there, the light of the Lamb. And not only is the city itself full of light, But the city sheds light. It shines light out. It illuminates the world around it. It's like a city on a hill that shines out. It's not like a lamp under a bushel basket. It's a city that shines out to the world so that the nations flow to the city, bringing their treasures to it. That's us. You, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. You are that city that sheds light out to the nations. It's a city of purity. Nothing unclean is supposed to enter into it. There are, there are gates so the nations can bring their treasures in, so the nations can come and tri- uh, bring tribute to the Lord. But those gates are guarded so that nothing unclean would enter the city, and there are guardians at the gates of the city. It's a city of purity. It's a garden city. 
Again, the beginning of chapter 22 describes it as a garden city with a river like the river of Eden, with trees of life, not just one, but many along the river like Eden, a glorified, improved Eden. The fruit is for the nations. The leaves are for the healing of the nations. That garden city is us now. I imagine you have some skepticism about that reading of the passage. Church doesn't look like that. Church doesn't look particularly bright. The church doesn't seem to illumine the world around it. As often as not, we don't heal the nations, but we exacerbate and intensify conflict among nations. Do we feed the world? Do we provide it light? Are we a pure city? Seems like the guardians of the city, the guardians of the city gates, have turned in their resignations and just anything can come into the church. This is a vision of the church. Well, I think that kind of objection misses the point of the whole vision. In the Old Testament, several times uh, prophets were given visions of something that Israel was supposed to build according to the vision. Moses was on Sinai and he saw the pattern for the tabernacle. But then he brought that pattern down and he explained to the Israelites how are they, how they were supposed to build the tabernacle on earth. The tabernacle didn't stay on top of the mountain. Moses saw it so that it could be brought down and built. David sees the pattern for the temple. And he conveys that to Solomon and Solomon builds a temple according to the pattern that David had delivered to him. Ezekiel in our Old Testament reading sees a vision not only of a great glorified temple, but he sees a vision of a glorified city and a glorified land that anticipates the vision we have here at the end of Revelation. That vision is supposed to guide Israel as they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem after the exile, as they rebuild the people of God. That is a vision of what Israel is supposed to be. No, Israel doesn't match up, but it gives them a template, a set of blueprints about how they're supposed to rebuild. And that's what this vision does too. John is another prophet who ascends like Moses, like David, like Ezekiel, to see the pattern of the city that is to be built on earth, brings it down to us, shows it to us here on these pages, and implicitly says, get to work. This is the last page of the Bible, last chapter of the Bible. It's the end. But it's not the end. If John wanted to end things at the end, if God had, or the Spirit had wanted to end things at the end, he would have ended it after the third vision. That's when you see the end. But at the end of chapter 22, at the end of Revelation, we're actually left with an open-ended ending, an ending that's much more like a new beginning. We don't have the bride satisfied that the Lord is has come. We have the bride and the Spirit longing like the bride at the end of the Song of Songs, longing for the coming of her husband, looking forward to something that hasn't been recorded here, some history that's not yet been written, some history that's not yet happened. And the same thing is true of this last vision. This last vision is an ideal of the city that is presently here, descended from heaven, the city of God here, you. It's an ideal, but it's set before us to realize on earth, 
so that the church becomes truly a city of light, a pure city, so that church it really becomes a city that heals the nations, a city that feeds the nation, a city that supplies life-giving water, the water of the Spirit, to the nations. That's what we aspire to. That's the blueprint. And that's what John leaves us with. And then says, get to work. The last word of Revelation is not a the end. It's not, and they lived happily ever after. The last word of Revelation is, in part, come Lord Jesus, longing for his final coming. But the last word is also, here are the blueprints. Go and build. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the vision it gives us of our vocation as your people. We pray that we would keep this before us, in the forefront of our minds. Our hearts would be inspired to follow you, to become the people, to become the city that you claim that we are. We pray that you would do this by your Spirit, through the Spirit of Jesus, so that the bride might resemble her husband, and the glory of the bride might point people to the glory of the Lamb. We pray this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.